You're listening to Politics Weekly. To uh, be big underdogs uh, in the race uh, for the uh, the presidency. One of them is uh, joining me today. We can survive all those systems. What's going to happen if you legalize it completely? Politics Weekly is a podcast on politics, news, and principles. Okay, welcome back to Politics Weekly. Uh, Today we have a very special guest. Uh, We have Emily Conrad. She is the writer of the new book, The Faithless, The Untold Story of the Electoral College. Uh, Emily, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on, Nolan. So tell us a little bit about the book, Faithless, uh, The Faithless. What, What is it about? Tell people a little bit about that. The Faithless um, contains uh, interviews with eight faithless electors from the 2016 Electoral College. Um, and what a faithless elector is, is somebody who, um, who did not vote for the winner of their state's popular vote. So in 2016, this would be a Democratic elector who didn't vote for Clinton or a Republican elector who wouldn't vote for Trump. I was really fascinated whenever I uh, discovered that there was such a thing as faithless electors. And um, Mm. when I was doing some research in 2017, I saw that there were faithless electors on both sides of the aisle. There were Republican and Democratic faithless electors. And immediately, my curiosity was piqued. And I thought to myself, why isn't anybody talking about this? This is a very important part of our electoral process. So um, over the course of a couple of years, I reached out to a lot of the faithless electors and they agreed to share their story with me. So um, this book contains um, interviews with eight faithless electors, both Republicans and Democrats. And um, it also has some uh, other chapters kind of uh, thrown in there as well that kind of explain the evolution of the Electoral College and how it kind of became this institution that we know today. Um, and I, I know that uh, faithless electors have been uh, a big part of American history, uh, or they've been around for a while. I know uh, historically, infamously, in 2004, uh, one faithless elector from uh, Minnesota wrote in John Edwards uh, as the Democratic candidate and John Kerry as the running mate rather than vice versa. And they infamously spelled John Edwards, John Edvards, uh, but it was still counted. Um, what were some of the most, what were some of the more interesting things you learned while you were talking to some of these faithless electors? Well, I, I went in kind of with an open mind. I, I really wanted to understand why did these people vote? Um, why were they really, why were they willing to risk everything, their entire political reputation to vote facelessly? And um, what can their faithless votes tell us about our political climate? So I, I went in there. Faithless electors is such a strong term. Um, you know, it, it's one of these things nobody wants to be called faithless. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of a, a derogatory term. And, and, of course, that really impacted the way I started my research. But I tried to tell myself, let me go into this as open-minded as I can be. 
and understand what was the message that they were trying to get across mm. in this faithless vote and why would they do that and the first thing that i was fascinated by was um the diversity of the electors um that i interviewed and um you know i mean basically it was really fascinating because i would i'd be researching this and i'd be talking to just such a wide assortment of people. Um, in my book, there are um, there are interviews with two millennial Hispanic electors, uh, mm. both who decided not to vote for uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, there is an interview with a Georgia uh, elector um, who was a former refugee from South Vietnam who decided not to vote for Trump. Um, there's an uh, there's an interview with uh, Robert Satyakum, who is a Native American activist out of Washington State of the Tlaib tribe, and it was really interesting as I was talking with these individuals. Uh, you know, I, I kind of expected a narrative to kind of arise of this is why we all voted faithlessly, but you really saw that what ended up happening in 2016 is that these people found themselves for whatever reason, among the 538 votes that actually mattered in the country. And that immense responsibility really impacted them. And uh, that was really fascinating for me to explore. But I think what really, what, what really surprised me was just the diversity of electors. Like, I just assumed that they would be kind of rich old guys. <laughs> but that they really, um, of course, that is a, a demographic of electors, mm -hmm. but uh, it's not the only demographic. Now, I know during the 2016 election, there was generally this attitude uh, of frustration with the two candidates. Uh, Donald Trump was a very controversial candidate, remains a very controversial candidate. Uh, Hillary Clinton uh, uh, was very controversial as well. Uh, I know historically, uh, both Clinton and Trump had historically low uh, favorability ratings for uh, major party nominees. Uh, was there a feeling of frustration with the two candidates uh, based on the faithless electors that you talked to? For, for sure. Um, and, and one of the things that, that um, I, I don't really explore, I mean, this isn't a book about 2020, but one of the things that I always think about was that every Democratic um, a faithless elector that I interviewed was originally a supporter of Bernie Sanders during the primary. Mm. And uh, actually two of the faithless electors were actually at the DNC. In, um, at the, uh, and so I think that that's really interesting that you have this coming out. Um, and, and of course, this is kind of a, a theme that, that, that kind of uh, reemerges re in 2020. Um, so, yes, on the Democratic side, you definitely saw that. On the Republican side, you also definitely saw that. Um, it, and one of the interesting things that whenever I was doing my, my research, a lot of the electors, the Republican electors, um, just based off of every state has a different timetable by which they have, um, by which they choose their electors. And several of them said, well, you know, when I was chosen or when I was selected to be an elector, um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't yet a completely certain that Donald Trump would be the nominee. And I thought that was really interesting um, that you had electors who became electors without knowing 100 percent who they're going to vote for. And then when when faced with Donald Trump as the candidate, they were kind of uh, hesitant about that. So, yes, you, you did see a lot of frustration on both sides, which did uh, lead to faceless electors. And, of course, the question is, could this happen again in 2020? Mm. Now, I noticed um, 
during the 2016 election, the majority of the uh, electors that voted faithlessly, some of them, uh, you know, voted uh, for candidates in states that Trump won, uh, but the majority of them voted uh, for candidates other than Hillary Clinton in states that Hillary Clinton won. Um, uh, Was there... um, an understanding as to why there were so many people in Clinton states that chose to uh, vote against uh, or, or not vote uh, with the other electors uh, on uh, for Hillary Clinton in 2016? Uh, yes. So it's really interesting. If you take a look at the Electoral College, um, it is not strange. Um, there's there's a professor who, who uh, researches, uh, his name is Robert Alexander out of Ohio Northern University. And uh, he researches the Electoral College and who are these electors and sends them out a questionnaire um, every four years. And he's been doing that since, since the 2000 election. And um, I, I kind of, I delve into his research some in my book. Um, but one of the interesting things that he has discovered in the process of doing these questionnaires and these surveys is that basically that a huge percentage of electors, regardless of what election year it is, are actively lobbied to change their vote. Um, So I I think that's a really fascinating topic that we didn't quite realize. Now, in 2016, what you saw was just a massive, uh, almost a grassroots lobbying effort to try to sway Republican electors to change their vote from Donald Trump. And uh, two of the electors that I interview in my book, uh, Brett Chafello and Michael Baca, um, they, are, they were Democratic electors, Brett Chafello out of Washington State and Michael Baca out of Colorado. And one of the things that they kind of came up with was that, well, they, they were very much uh, against Donald Trump. And they said, well, you know what? Hillary Clinton has already lost. What if we as Democratic electors say that we will vote for a more moderate Republican candidate? And maybe in so doing, we can inspire moderate Republican electors to follow suit and then deny Donald Trump the 270 uh, electoral college votes to win. And this was a really a fascinating uh, movement because it was elector uh, driven. You had two electors Mm. kind of doing this in their spare time. And uh, they called themselves the Hamilton Elector Movement. And um, mm-hmm. I do delve into it in the book, but basically what they were saying was, uh, based off of Anna- Alexander Hamilton's writings in the Federalist Papers, that the Electoral College was the last line of defense um, to kind of make sure that uh, a bad guy wouldn't get the presidency. And they said, well, this is the time to do that. So it was really fascinating. Um, and they really got a lot of traction um, and one of the interesting things is I would talk to them because I would talk to them again and again, and I would say, could this have worked? Because in the end, only one Republican elector actually joined and jumped onto the Hamilton elector bandwagon mm. out of Texas. And I said, but, you know, what was going on behind the scenes? And they say, well, you know, we were talking and we thought we could have upwards of 50 Republican electors defect on the day up. And I thought to myself, that's, that's fascinating. I received that, that, that number from, from multiple sources. And it's really interesting to think of, you know, why exactly that didn't work. Um, right. And, you know, I think that there are lots of stories that are yet to be uncovered about what happened in 2016 and the 2016 Electoral College. Mm. Right. And I know that um, that strategy for in many ways backfired because, um, it wasn't Donald Trump who, uh, 
lost as many, who, who, uh, was not backed by as many faithless electors, it was Hillary Clinton, because obviously, you know, there, there were four faithless electors that voted against her in Washington state, and then one that voted, uh, against her in Hawaii, um, why do you think that strategy backfired? Well, the the strategy was, um, you know, not not every elector who voted against Hillary Clinton worked the Hamilton electors, mm. um, and so I think that the strategy. So when, one of the th- reasons why I think that the Hamilton electors um, did not succeed is, um, well, they, they they basically say, you know, that that it was kind of a chicken or the egg situation, that nobody wanted to be the first to defect. And whenever the electors on the eastern seaboard didn't uh, vote faithlessly on the day of the Electoral College vote, then the ones in, you know, the Central and Pacific time also didn't do so. And and that's what they claim. And so it's interesting. They kind of said that everybody was wanting assurances that everybody else was going to do it. And it it is true when you have kind of this this sense of voting. You don't want to be the Mm. only one doing, doing something. Um, but, you know, one of the things is that there were several Democratic electors who decided not to vote for Hillary Clinton outside of that Hamilton electors paradigm. Uh, Robert Satyakum out of uh, Washington State, for example, he had been a strong Bernie Sanders supporter, uh, supporter and then eventually decided to uh, actually face, uh, place the first electoral college votes for Native Americans. Uh, he voted for Faith Spotted Eagle for president and Winona LaDuke as vice president. And I think that that kind of fit with his uh, personal beliefs. Uh, he's a very strong activist, and he was always, he had a radio show and talked about, you know, kind of, uh, you know, like pan-Indigenous issues on that radio show. Um, the faithless elector out of Hawaii, for example, he had only joined the Democratic Party because of Bernie Sanders. And when and, um, when he was, cho- and uh, many of the electors are actually voted in during a state caucus or state convention. And he said, well, you know, I was elected in by my fellow Bernie crats, so I don't feel much of a much uh, much of a problem voting for Bernie Sanders with my electoral mm. college vote. Um, so, um, yeah, you had these two kind of competing uh, these two not not competing, but these two different narratives uh, during that mm. same election cycle. And sometimes they would intertwine and sometimes they, they would definitely diverge. Right. Uh, and I, I know if I. Remember correctly, I remember uh, the faithless elector that voted uh, for Faith Spotted Eagle. I know he gained a lot of backlash uh, from the left for not uh, casting his uh, his ballot for Hillary Clinton. Um, did did you uh, did some of the uh, faithless electors did they talk about like any backlash they might have received? Well, I mean, almost all of them were receiving death threats, both Republicans and the Democrats were, um, which is really fascinating. Uh, Robert Satyakum actually went to a safe house when he was followed home one evening, Um, and he still has no idea who followed him back, but he was very scared. He separated up his family. Um, And it's really interesting because, you know, a lot of the electors, they're just normal, everyday people, and then one day... They become so, I mean, they become very powerful. Their votes become extremely powerful. And, you know, and they're faced with death threats. They're faced with uh, these sorts of, uh, you know, these threats from the outside. And a lot of them don't know what to do with it. 
um, Brett Chafella out of Washington State. He was all like, I think I you know, need to buy um, you know, a, a bulletproof vest and have a contingency plan in case something bad has happened. Um, and then out of the other side, you know, like, for example, you had Art Cisneros uh, from Texas, who actually ended up dropping out as an elector, um, but who had said very vocally that he wasn't going to vote for Trump, but with pressure, he backed down. I mean, he was receiving death threats, you know, kind of all the time. And he said, you know, he, he his wife was homeschooling all their kids at the house. And he said the only thing that kept him secure was the knowledge that they had a lot of guns. <laughs> <laughs> Which I mean, it was like uh, you know, it's it's it was very interesting to hear how these uh, you know how these people dealt with this pressure. But yeah, there was a lot of backlash, and they would and these and a lot of these electors they would receive backlash from both sides, um, mm. and then also from the middle as well. Mm. Uh, so where can people uh, find your book? Uh, they can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or through uh, the, their local independent bookseller on Bookshop. Okay. I want to move into the news this week. Um, uh, so, uh, And I want to get your thoughts on that. So uh, this week, um, Amy Coney Barrett uh is uh is uh coming before the uh, uh is coming before the US Senate there's a vote scheduled to take place today uh it appears as though uh right now uh she is poised to be confirmed uh what are your thoughts uh on that well i i thought it was interesting that that this was done of course before the election um i thought that it actually could have been a rallying cry um for conservatives um after the fact uh or you know to, to have waited after the election saying once we win then we'll put her then we then we'll put her up but i understand that that the republicans might lose the senate so i guess it makes sense um so i, I um so those are my initial thoughts about it. Um, and I do think, I mean, the Supreme Court, of course, does have a lot to say about the Electoral College. Um, in July, um, they did decide there were two Supreme Court cases that were heard in May and decided upon in July. Uh, Chafello versus Washington and Colorado versus Baca. And um, it was decided unanimously that by the Supreme Court that state laws to bind electors are not unconstitutional. Um, the only problem is, is that, you know, when it comes to this, a lot of people said, oh, the Electoral College is fixed. There are no more faithless electors. The only problem is, is that only something like 13 or 14 states actually have laws that can remove a faithless elector during the vote itself. Um, the rest of the state laws, and there are only 33 states that have laws, the rest of the laws are just kind of more of like a fine after the fact. Um, so it's really interesting looking ahead to how the Supreme Court will definitely impact the Electoral College, because this year they already have impacted the Electoral College. Um, but I think that they just kind of made it maybe slightly more disjointed and more confusing than it was before, <laughs> if that could have been possible. Mm. All right. Um, obviously, there was a, uh, a debate this week uh, between uh, Joe Biden uh, and Donald Trump Um you know, they sparred over a number of issues, uh, you know, including uh, health care, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and other uh, issues. What were your thoughts uh, on the debate? Uh, I think that most of the people uh, who would watch the debate have already decided which candidate that they would support um, or that they support beforehand. 
Um, and I think that a lot of people, um, you know, and this was, and I think this was also the case in 2016. I think that you see a lot of people who on both sides of the aisle feel like the, the parties aren't representing their personal mm. beliefs or kind of aren't listening to what, what they want. And so the people who tune in, I think that they tune in just to kind of be entertained a bit and to get a sense, uh, but they've already made their decision. And I think a lot of people have already kind of left that arena already and just maybe waiting out maybe for 2024. <laughs> mm. um, or, or at least maybe a lot of young people. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, let's uh, move on to the next story. So I know right now there's a lot of controversy over the, uh, the Hunter Biden uh, story, uh, you know, uh, there, there are currently rumors that Hunter Biden, uh, his email was involved or that he had, uh, he was sending emails to multiple different governments, um, uh, in, you know, involving, uh, illegal deals. Uh, right now there are some, there are other rumors. There are rumors that there was a sex tape that was released of him. Uh, what are your thoughts on, uh, on that controversy? Um, well, it's, uh, I mean, I guess the biggest question is, is that, um, you know, as we look into the controversy, the biggest question that I, I, that I'm faced with is just who's reporting this news versus who's not. And Mm. until we really have a consensus of, you know, where is this, you know, um, I think that you're going to have one group of people who says, yes, this is true. And the other group of people that says this is false. Um, until there's really a consensus on the media to decide to really delve into this and determine whether the allegations are true or false, it's just going to divide the country even more. Um, and I think that media, just in general, um, they, they need to take maybe slightly more responsibility um, instead of just dismissing something without, you know, the accurate proof to say this is why and this is why and this is why. Or, you know, or really providing all the proof to prove something. Um, you're really just having a lot of people just sharing things online. And, and and it's just creating something where people get more entrenched in their own beliefs rather than really looking at something and looking through the, um, looking through the, um, through the evidence. Uh, that being said, I mean, foreign interference in elections, uh, that was one of my, my reasons why I decided to actually mm. even write this book. Um, my background is in international relations. Um, I've been based out of China for, you know, the last five years. Uh, I got married over there. And mm. really, one of the things that I was fascinated with was as I looked into the Electoral College, I thought to myself, there are 538 votes that really count at the end of the day. And how hard would it be for a foreign bad faith actor to identify these people and try to, you know, and and try to have some sort of impact on them? It's not very hard at all, to be honest. And people were talking about foreign interference and Facebook groups and this sort of thing. I'm like, well, it would be not that hard to find out who these people are and to try to sway them. Um, And so I really think that we have to start looking at the Electoral College as also a national kind of security issue, you know. I mean, we need to understand what these, what, what, what this institution is, so we don't allow foreign or domestic bad faith actors to kind of wreak havoc with our electoral process. Mm. Um, now, do you think that there could be 
you talk about uh, there being a demand for other candidates or a frustration with the two candidates. Do you think that there could be a, a potential of more faithless electors this year? I, I think that there definitely could be. Um, not saying that I that I would necessarily. I, I mean, I don't want that. I mean, you don't want chaos in an electoral process. But I mean, the Supreme Court over, over the summer they said that they had that they unanimously decided that state laws to bind electors being constitutional. They they basically said we just don't want chaos in our election. But by the way that they kind of phrased it, it kind of almost created more chaos because what because basically the electoral college is amazingly disjointed between different states um in one state they choose their electors this way in the neighboring state they choose their electors this way there's really not a system a systemic way of of really understanding how the electoral college works because it differs from state to state and party to party and now it's not just how electors are chosen that differs from state to state and party to party now it's now it's basically if you vote facelessly, is it illegal or, or is it is it illegal or is it legal? Um, will you be fined? Will you be jailed or will you be removed or will you face no no consequences at all? And now this differs from state to state. And it actually made, in my view, the, the system actually even more complicated than it was before. Uh, all right. Uh, Emily Conrad, thank you again for joining me. Uh, before you go, do you want to tell people where you can be found? Uh, yeah, so um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter. My my handles are Emily C. Conrad. I have a Facebook group or a Facebook page for my book, uh, The Faithless Book, and I post up things for there from time to time, just different videos. If people have questions about the Electoral College, I really love researching this topic, and you know, I'm always learning new things. And so if anybody has a question about the Electoral College, I would be happy to, um, to, to, if I don't know the answer off the top of my head, I'm happy to start researching it and I will get the answer to, to, to you. <laughs> All right. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, make sure to tune in next Tuesday for the special election episode of Politics Weekly. And... Donald Trump or Joe Biden? Voters will soon decide who will get to lead the nation through social unrest, a global pandemic, and a fight for the Supreme Court. Politics Weekly will be with it all with Election Week 2020. During this week, get analysis about the candidates, history about past elections, and more. And strap in for an action-packed Election Day special on November 3rd, Election Week, happening this week on Politics Weekly. Hey everybody, welcome to the HUD Podcast. It's the new official podcast for the Hudsonian newspaper at Hudson Valley Community College. I'm Nolan Cleary, the managing editor for the Hudsonian, and I'm going to be your host. On this show, we're going to talk all about the news on campus, and we're going to give you all the advice you need to make it at HVCC. Right now, we're living in uncertain times, and I think this podcast is going to be a great outlet to sort of capture and address the concerns students have at this time. You know, one of the things I love about the Hudsonian is that any student can join, and you can get paid for it. The HUD, coming soon to YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.